0: Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to 22, and the theme of this morning's message. The last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the truth to us. Give us insight into difficult passages in the book of Hebrews, things that are sometimes distant to us because of old not only old terms but old ways of of doing things we don't understand a world of priests and sacrifices and yes we do understand something about wills and testaments but we do pray that you would open the truth to our hearts and our minds lord and show us how this applies to our christian lives today and to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Saviour, that you would show them how this applies to them and how they can find peace and rest in the Saviour. Amen. So a will is a very personal document. Your personal will and testament not meant for everyone's eyes. And yet when we come to the testament or the will of Jesus Christ, it's open, it's there for all to read. And the question we need to answer this morning is Is your name written in the will, the last will and testament of Jesus? And how can you know whether your name appears there or not? Let's read the passage, Hebrews 9 verse 15 to 22. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, Was inaugurated without blood for when every commandment of the lord been declared by moses to all the people he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that god commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So number one, we're going to look at the testator and the executor. And that's in verse 15a. So the uh, the testator is the person who writes the will. So let's say, for instance, I write in my will when I die, my son will inherit all my books, and my daughter will inherit the car, and my other daughter will inherit all the furniture, and then my wife will inherit everything in my bank account and all the rest of my possessions. So, I'm the testator, and then the executor will be appointed by me. When I write in my will, my brother will be the executor, so that when I die, he will make certain that these possessions are indeed given to the heirs, to those who are supposed to get them. Now obviously I can't be the testator and the executor because if I'm the testator then my will can only come into effect once I die. So once the testator dies the will comes into effect and then the executor has to be another person who divides up uh, the inheritance. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, in in Jesus' will, Jesus is the testator and the executor. He's the testator, and then he dies, and then the will takes effect. But then Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, so he's he's the executor. He's the one who makes sure that the inheritance is given to those to whom it comes, and we'll see who that is just now. So... Talking about Jesus as the, as the testator, that also helps us in another way. Because Jesus is co-regent with the Father. Regent meaning king, a royal person. Jesus is equal to the Father, we saw in chapter 1, verse 3. And now he rules as king with the Father. But we, the heirs in this uh, will, how can we inherit the riches And the treasures of God's kingdom. We sinners. How can we come before a holy God? How can we come before this eternal king? And yet the will stipulates that the heirs will inherit the kingdom. How can we come before this God? And that's exactly where the testator comes in. So the testator, he is God and man. And so Jesus, as God and man, can represent us with the Father. He can come to the King because He Himself is the King. And He can represent us before the Father. And He can bring us to the Father. So verse 15 says He's a mediator. Yes, He's a testator of the will, but He's also a mediator. Meaning He stands between us and God. Like in um, Job chapter 9, verse 32 and 33 Job said, I wish I can come before God to state my case, because this seems so unfair, all the things happening to me. And then Job says, but I cannot come to God, because He's God and I'm a man. How can I, who am merely a man, come before God? There is no arbiter between us. There's no no mediator between us. There's no go-between who can lay His hand on both sides. But now with Jesus, it works like this. Because He's God and man, it's almost like when you go to the United States, you're there for business, and then you f- pick up a really t- cheap uh, Apple laptop, but or whatever other make, brand, and then you come back and you forget, oh, goodness, um, American plugs for their appliances look different from ours, so I can't plug this into my wall plug. So what you need is an adapter, Uh, So you need an adapter, and even the voltage is different. So you need an adapter, so your laptop plug can plug into that adapter, and then the adapter plugs into our wall plug. And so that helps that you're, without needing to buy another cable, that your laptop can uh, plug into that adapter and you can use it in South Africa. And so we can, in one sense, say Jesus is the adapter. He fits both sides. Jesus is God, so he can represent God with with man and jesus is man so he can represent man before god and so jesus in his in his office as mediator in his position as mediator we shouldn't understand then that jesus will forever remain god and man so he's god and man 1 timothy 2 verse 5 there's one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus we expect the son of man to return every eye will see him says revelation 1 The Son of Man was seen by the Apostle John. The Son of Man sitting on a cloud in Revelation 14, verse 14. Stephen, before he died, the heavens opened and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. God will judge the world by a man. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. And even the high priest Jesus said to him, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power. So Jesus forever remains God and man, otherwise he would never be able to be, verse 15, a mediator of the new covenant uh, uh, an adapter a one who's a go-between so as man jesus understands our problems jesus understands our pain he feels what we felt he went through what we go through hebrews 4 15 and as god he's able to help us because he has all wisdom and all power so our response should be to go to Him and to pour out our hearts before Him and draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You don't have to be like Jacob who was sly and he was a fox where Jacob, when he wanted the blessing, he stole the blessing. You don't need to steal the blessing. Jesus has purchased it for you. You can can simply come to Him and say, You are the testator, Lord Jesus, and You have made me an heir of the will, of Your will, of Your testament, of Your covenant. Please, will you not act as the executor and bless me according to what you have written in your will? And especially in a time like this, Lord, I need your grace. And I need peace. And I need your, your joy and your goodness and your favor. And I need your blessing. And I need, I need hope, Lord. Please, assurance, give it to me. Number two, the testament and the heirs. Heirs, uh, H. E-I-R the people who will inherit so the testament and the heirs and that is in verse 15b so when when you write a will and maybe later on you have more children or more grandchildren and you want to include them in your will their names well then you have to kind of recall and the first will that you wrote is no longer valid Then you write a new will with a new date, and that's called your last will or your final will. And when we speak of God's first will that he wrote, let's say to Israel, he wrote, He's the testator, Israel are the heirs, and then the promised land is the inheritance, and then you've got these animal sacrifices, which is just a shadow and a preview of the testator who would die in the in future. And then, obviously, they needed to keep certain, there were certain requirements before they could inherit. And that, were the Ten Com- that was the Ten Commandments, where God said, You keep these laws, and you will inherit the promised land. Now, unfortunately, as we know, Israel broke God's law, and therefore they couldn't receive the inheritance. They could not receive the promised land. And even those who did go into the land didn't stay there. They were killed, and some of them were taken away to other countries. They were taken to Assyria. They were taken to Babylon. So then what God did is he recalled that will. He, he had to almost scrap that will and make a new will, as we read in Hebrews chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, verse 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And so then he wrote his final will and testament, his last will and testament. So that's the New Testament, where God is also, it's again, it's, it's God who is the testator, and then Christ who is the heir. But now because we are united to Christ by faith, we are co-heirs with Christ. So we also inherit with Christ. We inherit, Romans 8 verse 17, co-heirs with Christ. And then the kingdom of God is the inheritance, Matthew 25 verse 34. And then the blood of Jesus makes the will come into effect. It, It takes effect. It actually now can be effectual when the testator dies, and that is Jesus. And then, very good news, Jesus kept the requirements that we need to keep in order to inherit. And so Jesus kept the law perfectly, the Ten Commandments. He did it for us. And then, He washed away our sin. He removed the sin and the punishment we deserve our law breaking. Then he writes the law on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So now we have a desire to do his will in Hebrews 8. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit who helps us and enables us to keep the requirements. But although Jesus' requirements are credited to us, but now even we desire to keep his requirements because we love him. Now the question comes, is your name in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And if you say yes, how do you know that? How do you know that? God wrote that testament. He wrote that will before he created the world. Our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth. Romans, or uh, Revelation thirteen eight and seventeen 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 speaks of the salvation and this is how Paul describes it. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, calling not because of works, but be, our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So how do you know your name? How, what makes you so sure that your name is in his will, in his testament? Well, to answer the question, it's not very difficult to answer. We need to answer these questions. Have you heard the good shepherd call your name? Have you really heard him say to you, follow me? Because verse 15 says, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Are you called? Have you heard the voice of the good shepherd? Because Jesus' sheep, they know his name. They know the shepherd's voice. Or he knows their name and they know his voice. And, And when you hear his voice, You don't hear it with your ears. But there's a voice inside your heart. And you know that's the shepherd's voice. It's the voice that called you to life. And there's something in that voice you cannot resist. Like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew and the other disciples. When he called, they had to follow. And also they wanted to follow. Is that true of you? Do you believe with your whole heart he's the one He's the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, if then, bow your knee. Bow your knee. Do you? Have you? Have you bowed the knee before Him as Lord? Do you obey Him as Lord? Are you grieved when you sin against Him because you love Him and you do not want to displease Him? Well, if those things are true of you, then your name is in the will. Your name name is in His final will and testament. That he wrote before the foundation of the world. We know it because Acts 13 verse 48 says those who were destined to eternal life believed. So what was the proof that their names were in the the book of life? They believed. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Are you holy and blameless? Then you've been chosen. Your name is in the testament. In the will first thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4 paul says god has chosen you and then verse 5 how do we know it because when our word our gospel came to you it did not come in word only but in the holy spirit and with power you believed you were changed that's the proof you were chosen your name is in the will second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 it says that we have been loved by God and God chose us as firstfruits to be saved. How do we know it? Through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So if you believe in the truth and you're sanctified, you've made holy. God has made you holy. He set you apart from the world. You no longer live for the world but for Christ. Then you've been chosen. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 speaks of God choosing people. And then in verse 2 he says, In hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And then in verse 1 he even says the faith of god's elect so if you have faith in christ then you've been chosen 1 peter 1 verse 1 says speaks of the elect and in verse 2 by the foreknowledge of god and then it says unto obedience so if you're obedient to christ then you know my name is in the testament it's in the will second peter 1 verse 10 make your calling and election sure make certain that you have been called and chosen how do you know that the previous verses do you have faith virtue excellence knowledge self-control brotherly love and so on so i really want to encourage you don't break your head over the doctrine of election the bible does not say believe in the doctrine of election and you will be saved it says believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved so don't make make the doctrine of election the basis for your salvation that's a, that's a mistake that Israel made. Oh, we Jews, we've been circumcised. So we are, we are the elect. Hmm. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And some people even today, oh, I've been baptized. I was baptized and I've been baptized into the covenant. i have part, part of God's covenant people. I'm a member of a church. Listen, the Bible never makes the doctrine of election the basis of, for you to be certain that you've been saved. The basis of your assurance is not that, because you cannot see the book of life. You don't see your name written there. You have to look at the fruit of your life, but there's something else we need for assurance. So you cannot say, oh, I'm, I'm part of a church. I'm part of some religious group, and therefore I know my name is in the book of life. Don't think your name is in the book of life just because it's on some membership roll somewhere. The basis of our assurance is the cross of Christ. That's the basis of salvation. Yes, there exists a doctrine like election. Yes, God elected people into salvation before the foundation of the world. But you can only know you are saved if you are resting in Christ and trusting in the cross of Christ. So trust in the cross. Don't trust in your own law keeping or anything else. And then you know the Father will accept the perfect obedience, the perfect law keeping of His Son, as if you kept the law perfectly. And then you can know that the Father will accept the death of His Son as if you were punished for your own law breaking. Verse 15. Second part of the verse, since a death occurred, a death has occurred that redeems them, that is believers, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what's the point? The point is, only by faith in Christ can you know for sure your name is in God's will. And the testament, in the final will and testament of Jesus Christ, you are an heir of heaven, an heir of the kingdom. So the question to ask then is, do you believe? I'm not talking about an intellectual belief. I'm talking about, do you really trust in Jesus Christ? Not only trusting for temporary things like health and a job and and better circumstances, do you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? And does your conscience testify to the fact your sins have been forgiven. Do not rest until you know for certain that you've been forgiven and saved from your sin. number three the inheritance the inheritance and that's in verse 16 to 20 New. 22, and really, it, it's not only the inheritance, but it's also um, the will-taking effect. In Afrikaans, we would use a, a word, bekrachtig. And unfortunately, I didn't check it in English before preaching the sermon. But my wife and I, we are married in community of property. Meaning, we share everything. For those who are younger and may not me- know what that means. We share everything what's hers is mine and what's mine is hers. And in the same way we can say Jesus and the church are married in community of property. So everything that belongs to Jesus and to the Father also belongs to us. So Jesus is an heir of the kingdom. He's the heir of all things, according to Hebrews 1 verse 2, and so are we, because we're married in community of property. Let me uh, read a verse from Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21 to 23. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So what, what death now does The death of Jesus, and just death in general, death makes a will take effect. It makes it effectual. So whatever is written in the will, so and so will inherit this, so and so will inherit that. That takes place and can happen when the testator dies. And so for us now, eternal life is the inheritance. The kingdom of God is the inheritance And now it's available for us, this inheritance. It's available for the heirs as soon as the testator dies. Verse 16 and 17. For where will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. But, although we are the heirs, our names are written in his will, his last will and testament, We can only receive the inheritance once we believe. Not only when we go to heaven or when Jesus returns, but the moment you believe, you have eternal life. You inherit eternal life. Yes, you will enjoy the fullness of it only when Jesus returns. You will enjoy a much greater fullness... When you go to heaven, but when Jesus returns, you'll receive the final fullness when you also receive a new body you raised from the dead. So let me, let me take the illustration in verse 16 and 17 of the testator dies and then the heirs uh, receive the inheritance. And say that I think on the, on the basis of those verses, I can say that the New Testament, strictly speaking, doesn't begin when Jesus is born. Strictly speaking, it begins when Jesus dies. The testator dies. Then the will takes effect. But I also think we should be careful and not say, boom, that's the moment and now we have the fullness of that. We can go further and say it's almost like like sunrise. So there's a a point in the morning, let's say this time of the year it'll be around 6 o'clock in the morning. It's still dark outside. But... On the horizon you'll see a yellow strip you'll see there's a right above the horizon a very very faint yellow showing you that day is starting it's daybreak it's dawn just starting and and we can we can compare that to the birth of Jesus so the testator is born the light of the, the light comes into the world John 1 verse 9 and then slowly it starts getting more light and now it's now it's light but the sun hasn't risen yet so jesus to draw the comparison again jesus is preaching he's ministering he's doing miracles healing people so the light is shining in the darkness matthew 4 verse 16 and then the sun just sticks it its nose just the tip of its nose it sticks above the horizon And so that's the night before Jesus' death when he inaugurates, in a sense, the new covenant. Not completely yet, but he has the Lord's Supper. So he breaks the bread and he gives the wine to his disciples. And when he gives the cup, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's the testament. So that's the new covenant. That's a picture of the blood of the testator will be shed very soon, within a few hours. And then the sun rises, and the sun is now completely above the horizon. You can look straight into it, and it's this, this orange ball of fire. And that's when Jesus hangs on the cross. And finally, before he dies, he saves a man hanging on a cross next to him. So in a certain sense, we can say that's the very first New Testament believer. New Testament, new will, new covenant. Because Jesus dies before the man does. And then the sun has risen higher into the sky. And it's now a yellow sun, not orange anymore. And you can't look into it. You can't look into the sun anymore, straight into it. And that we will compare to the day of Pentecost. So now the sun is shining. And the spirit has been poured out. And now it's in the full sense of the word. New Testament believers. They've received the spirit according to the promises made in the Old Covenant, made in the book of Joel, for instance, that God will pour out His Spirit upon your sons and daughters, and that's a promise to New Testament believers. They'll be baptized with the Spirit. And then the sun rises even higher. Now the sun is really quite hot, but it's still morning. It's still a morning sun. And you can still see the moon on the other end of the heavens in the west. And that I would compare to the Jews. They, they fully knew covenant believers now. But they still can't understand how can the Gentiles be part. The Gentiles must be circumcised before they can be part of God's people. And they need to have a meeting in Acts 15. And they need to uh, really struggle through these things in Acts 10 and 11. To see it's not necessary for the Gentiles to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews before they can become Christians. And so, so they need to see there's a clear cut and a clear break between Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. And then eventually you've got the 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock sun, the noonday sun, shining in full glory and full strength, hot sun, and the moon is no longer on the west, in the western side of the heavens. It's gone. And that, I would say, is when the temple is destroyed in AD 70. So now there's a very, very clear message that there is no longer an old covenant; there is only a new covenant, a new testament. So uh, we can say, in one sense, that it's not very, not a very smooth and clear cut between all the new covenant, all the new testament, the first testament, the second testament. But we can say. There was a very decisive moment when the new covenant, the New Testament was inaugurated and came to effect, came into effect. And that's verse 17. A will takes effect only at death. The moment Jesus died, the new covenant, strictly speaking, started. And the benefits of that covenant when the Holy Spirit was poured out fifty days later, fifty days after the resurrection. On the day of Pentecost, but the moment Jesus died, it is finished. It was the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new. Well, even even under that first testament, blood needed to flow for the will or the covenant to take effect. Verse eighteen. Therefore, not even the first covenant. In other words, in the time of Moses, it was inaugurated without blood. If you read the book of Exodus, chapter 24, you see the old covenant coming into effect. So Moses is standing in front of the people of Israel, and he's reading from the book of the law. And the reason he reads the law, the Ten Commandments, is to tell the people, you are heirs of God's testament, of His will, of His covenant. You are going to inherit the promised land, but here are certain requirements. You keep them, you inherit the land. You don't keep them, you die. So he reads the law to them. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. What happened then? Verse 19 continues. He took, this Moses took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Why did he do that? Why did he sprinkle the book of the law and sprinkle the people with blood and water and probably took a bunch of hyssop and dipped it in the water and blood and sprinkled it on them and and the red wool, the scarlet wool. Well, the reason, everything is symbolic here. So the blood showed you deserve to die. You and I deserve to die for our sins. Our blood must be shed because we have broken this very law I just read to you, the Ten Commandments. And now God is merciful and gracious. These innocent animals will die. These animals without blemish will die as sacrifices in our place. All of that, of course, pointing to Jesus. This water that I'm sprinkling on you, it's symbolic of cleansing, water washes the body and this is symbolic that God will cleanse your souls and again that points to the holy spirit in future the holy spirit that would wash us from the inside through the new birth regeneration titus 3 verse 5 even hebrews 10:22 and that is pictured in baptism in water baptism not that baptism saves you but it's a picture of cleansing and then the scarlet wool well wool is taken from a sheep and scarlet is red so red wool speaks of the blood of a lamb. Again, pointing to Jesus. The blood of the lamb, 1 Peter 1 verse 19. And then a bunch of hyssop that was dipped into the blood and water, sprinkling it onto the people. Well, hyssop is an antiseptic. And so that would, obviously, if hyssop is used also to prevent germs from spreading and infection from spreading. So here, here it's a picture of spiritual cleansing of Removing the infection of sin. Psalm 51 verse 9. Cleanse me with hyssop. David prays after he had sinned. And Even when Jesus died. A bunch of hyssop is taken. A hyssop branch. And the sponge with sour wine is put to it. And brought to the lips of Jesus. To show he's the one that cleanses. And Exodus 12.22. A bunch of hyssop. The blood is dipped in the hyssop. And you remember when the Israelites painted the blood on the sides of the door and on the lintel so that they wouldn't die. And then Moses goes further, verse 21, in this uh, verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 21, in the same way, Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So again and again through the book of Exodus, you see it in Leviticus again, you see where. When the animal is slaughtered, the blood is thrown at the base of the altar, the foot of the altar, the, the bronze altar where the animals were sacrificed, or the golden altar where the incense was sacrificed, was burnt. And then they would even put blood on, the, on that, and even sprinkle blood uh, in front of the tent, the tabernacle, and blood in front of the mercy seat and on the mercy seat, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So again and again, blood to show that this tent And the furniture of this tent is used and to be used only for the worship of God. It is separated. It is set aside for the worship of the God of Israel. And for nothing else, no other purposes, may this tent and the furniture be used. Now, you know, under the old covenant, the law actually demanded that almost everything was purified with blood. Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Now, it says almost. Because not every, every, everything, uh, for instance, if you went to battle and you defeated the enemy, then you take their stuff. You take the gold and silver and lead and tin and copper and iron, and then that, those metals needed to be purified, not with blood, but with fire and water. In Numbers 31, verse 22 to 24. Or let's say someone is very, very, very poor. They cannot afford to sacrifice a lamb or a goat or a bull or even pigeons then they could sacrifice flour in Leviticus 5, verse 11 to 13. So there is no blood. But for the rest, those those are the exceptions. The rest, it's all blood. It's all blood. The Passover, uh, sprinkling blood on the priests before they start serving, sprinkling blood on on people. Even you find an example of, of lepers. When the leper gets cleansed, There are sacrifices to be made. Someone touches a dead body, sacrifices. Uh, So there's blood or there are emissions from a person's body, a male or a female, blood. So sacrifices. A baby is born, sacrifices. Furniture of the tabernacle, sacrifices. The Passover, sacrifices. People sin, sacrifices. So blood, 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 blood. Verse 22 Why? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Why not? Because sin deserves death. God said to Adam, Adam, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you die. Your blood will be shed. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to die. Our blood must be shed. And so that's why a perfect sacrifice was needed to die in the place of the sinner so that God could forgive them, as verse 22 says. So in the Old Testament, that would be animal sacrifices. Although they couldn't remove sin, they were just a picture of Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 1, Since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Verse 4, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And those sacrifices in the Old Testament really didn't start with Moses. It started with Adam and Eve. It started when they were supposed to die. Like God said, the day you eat of that tree, you die. And then God was merciful. And he didn't kill them that day. He killed animals. He killed animals and he made clothes of skin, according to Genesis 3. That was a sacrifice. In Genesis 4, Abel brought a sacrifice. Killed one of the lambs of his flock. Noah brought a sacrifice in Genesis 8, killing animals. Abraham the same in Genesis 15, when God made the covenant with him. In Genesis 22, when he wanted to sacrifice his son Isaac, God said, stop. And he sacrificed a ram in Isaac's place. Jacob brought sacrifices, Genesis 31, 54, 46, verse 1. Job brought sacrifices in Job chapter 1. And then, as you know, Israel throughout her whole history, they brought sacrifices. And then all of that points to the great and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who does, verse 22, He sheds His blood for the forgiveness of sins. As 1 John 1, verse 7 teaches, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us of all sin. And as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where it says, In Him... We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins. Now if God are to forgive us without the death of Jesus, without the cross, then it would mean He is an unholy God. Then it would mean He doesn't care about sin. Then it would mean He just turns a blind eye to sin. Oh, you can sin. Doesn't matter. I'll just forgive you. No punishment needed. I'm fine with sin. No. God passed over the sins of the people in the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, He would die on a cross so that we can be forgiven on the basis of that death. Verse 15. Second part of the verse. A death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So even the Old Testament believers, they were not punished and killed for their sin. Why not? Because in future... The testator would die also for their sins. Romans 3.25 and 26 says the same. And that's very important. Because many people want forgiveness without the cross. They think, oh yes, no God will forgive me. Because He's gracious. And they use God's grace and God's love as a cover up for evil. As a cover up for their sin. Oh, I can do this, and God will forgive me. I will ask Him. And they, by, by this, they cheapen God's grace and God's forgiveness. And they wouldn't have cheapened His grace and forgiveness if they saw the bloody cross, a, gl- a cross smeared with blood, a man hanging, hanging on a cross like a chunk of meat, unrecognizable as a human. And then they would have realized. Forgiveness does not come cheap. The testator had to die. And give his final breath. And his blood poured from his body like water from a tap. And he did it for us. So God does not sweep sin under the rug when he forgives us. Because he punished that very sin. When Jesus Christ died for us on a cross. He was made a curse for us. He was made sin for us. And so everyone who believes in Christ. Can plead for forgiveness. And they can know that God will forgive them. And God does not forgive them because it's his job or because he's in a good mood. God forgives them because Jesus bore the punishment for their sins on the cross. My dear believer, brother, sister, is there sin that you have not yet confessed? You can confess that sin and be forgiven. Because God is faithful and just. He has punished His Son for our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you backslidden? You do not know how to return? Don't try to earn God's favor by doing religious stuff. Not even reading the Bible and doing a quiet time. Or coming to church or giving money to the church. Trust and simply trust in Jesus who died in your place. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. And know God will forgive you because of the death of Christ. Perhaps you're sitting here listening to this message and you've never received forgiveness of sin. Maybe you've even confessed your sins once or twice and asked for forgiveness, but you haven't been forgiven because you're seeking forgiveness without the cross. Verse 22: Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So come to the cross, read about the cross in Isaiah 53. In the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Read of the cross in the book of Romans. Read of the cross in Galatians. Read of the cross in Hebrews. Read of the cross in the rest of the New Testament. There's the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. Where? I I don't see him. Look closely. Ask the Holy Spirit for eyes to see. And then look, and look again, and look until you see Jesus hanging on the cross. And as soon as you see Jesus, the sin that so bothers your conscience will fall from your shoulders as a great burden that will be removed. And you will feel relieved, light as a feather. And able to have a conscience cleansed through the blood of the Lamb, a conscience at peace with God. How do you know God will forgive you? What if you do see the cross with the eye of faith? What if you do believe in Jesus but the Father doesn't forgive you? Or what if He forgives you but you fall into sin again and you go to hell in the end? That can never happen. How do I know that? Because God has made a covenant. God has written a testament. A will. And it's the final will and testament that can never be broken. God is faithful. I can just imagine. I can almost hear the Father and the Son speaking to each other in eternity past. My Son. My son, I've written the names of millions of sinners in my will, my last will and testament. And I will give them as your inheritance. I give them as yours. Will you bear the punishment for their sins? I will do so, Father. And really, I want to do so because I love them. I love them too, my son. So it's a deal. You will die for them. This is the covenant. You will die for them and save them. And they will worship you. It is a covenant, Father. I will go to the earth. I will become truly man. And I will seal this testament, this covenant, this will with my blood. And so you will, my son. I love you. Thank you, Father. I love you too. Thank you for the covenant, Father, the testament and the will. And for those who are not sure whether their names have been written in the will, I pray you would open their eyes to see the Son of God crucified for sinners Risen from the dead. Seated at the right hand of God. Interceding for His people. Save sinners this morning. Encourage believers this morning. Reclaim backsliders. For Jesus' sake. The testator who shed His blood for our sins. Amen.